0: Welcome, listeners, to the first entry into our long-awaited veteran interview series, Reports from the Front. I say long-awaited because when we started Danger Close more than two years ago, the idea was to mix in veteran interviews with our film review episodes. So I sat down with several vets and recorded hours of conversations about their time in the service. We may have been a little overly ambitious, though. It turns out that producing a podcast is way more work than we expected, and we didn't have time to get to those interviews until now. Today, we're very excited to bring you our first veteran interview with former Marine Sergeant Tyler Funk. The end goal is to make it home alive. A general warning, we do discuss some simulated and not-so-simulated enhanced interrogation techniques that are part of this military training. Listener discretion is advised. Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome, everyone, to the first edition of our veteran interviews on Danger Close. I'm here today with an old friend of mine from the Marine Corps, Tyler Funk. Welcome, Tyler.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: Me and Tyler go way back to 2003 when we were just uh, very young and fresh starting off Marines. We met in uh, air traffic school out in Pensacola, and then uh, I ended up. Uh, getting sent to the same duty station as Tyler in Southern California. So we spent some time there. We were roommates for a while. We ended up deploying separately, but we each had our own uh, deployment experiences. And then Tyler went through some different training as an air traffic controller than I did and did a bunch of cool field stuff. And so we're going to get into that in this episode. But um, Tyler, why don't you give us a brief rundown of yourself? Let's talk about uh, what made you join the Marine Corps and kind of why you went the direction that you went once you were in and where you're at now.
1: So I joined uh the Marine Corps um right after high school. My buddy Derek, um, uh, we were the only two young guys that worked at this company, and uh his dad was a Marine. So we'd come in to work, we both had computers at our desks, and he always had these, you know, like sweet images of like a bunch of Marines jumping out of the back of a helicopter. That was like his background for his computer. So we got to talking, you know, and over the months and years or whatever. Uh, I eventually became very interested. So I went and hung out with Derek and his recruiter. And, uh, his recruiter was a cool guy. I will say, I think the recruiters, that's probably like a uh, prerequisite that, like, they, they know how to be a cool cat and get you to sign up. So this guy was tight, I remember. But it turns out me and Derek went to different high schools. So, uh, I had a different recruiter. This guy was like, oh, I can't. I can't be a recruiter. And I was like, "Man, this other guy is probably gonna be lame." He wasn't. Staff Sergeant Tomaselli, He ended up pinning me to sergeant on my second deployment. Oh, that's cool. So I got interested. Just went in, talked to him. Uh, my parents had no idea that I was talking to the Marine Corps. So one day, <laughs> <laughs> so one day I come home. Uh, we're sitting at the dinner table eating. You know, it's just kind of, hey, how's everybody's day? What'd you guys do? And I was just like, so I signed up for the Marine Corps. My parents were like, wait, what? Your mom must have been stoked. Yeah, I was like, and this was 2000, this was uh like October 2002. So nine eleven had just happened and uh, we're sitting around the dinner table. I was like, yeah, I like... Signed papers
0: today. (laughs) My parents were like, What? Tyler shipped out for boot camp in January 2003 to Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego, followed by three weeks of combat training at Camp Pendleton, California. And
1: it's funny, you were talking about Full Metal Jacket in your first episode, and I remember watching the first half boot camp portion. Over and over again, because like it's the excitement of this unknown, and it's like, what, what do I expect? And there's no way to really... It's like a, a dis-accurate portrayal of kind of what happens there. So, uh, I was watching that, you know, doing all your stuff, uh, joined the Marines. I signed up to be a, um, a UAV pilot. But as you know, uh, in the Marine Corps, you sign up for a job field, which will include roughly four jobs. So uh, I scored really well in the ASVAB. You know, so at the end of boot camp, they'll give you a... uh, you know they'll assign your job basically, and they're like, "Funk Air Traffic Control, raise my hand right away." I was like, "Hang on, this is wrong."
0: <laughs> <laughs> the same exact thing happened to me. I was like, "What the fuck yeah. is Air Traffic Control?"
1: Right, and I thought, just like a, like a lot of people, they think they're like you know out on the you know doing the
0: on the ramp with the with the light sticks, lit cones thing. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I was like, "No, wrong." He looks at me, takes one look back at the paper. He goes, "Nope." Air traffic control! (laughs) So, uh, you know, then you get a crash course, figure out what it is. And then, yeah, that's where I met you in uh, Pensacola,
0: going through uh, air traffic control school. Selected as an air traffic controller, he went to A school, his primary job training, in Pensacola, Florida, for four months. Pensacola is the home of naval aviation. The Blue Angels and other Navy Marine Corps pilots do their initial training here, too. Once he finished school, he got orders to Marine Corps Air Station Camp Pendleton, California, where he began his training in the control tower
1: so you know you do your your air traffic control school you get to i got to camp pendleton and then you're doing you know you're learning the job at camp pendleton controlling traffic and inside of myself it was like i had joined right after 9 11 and i was like you know let's go tear it up you know what i mean so it's kind of like uh like Like, the whole purpose why I joined in the first place was to participate, you know, in, you know, what the country was going through. Terrorism was was hot on everyone's lips. And I was like, you know what? I'm a young, fit guy. I'll get out there and tear it up for my country, my team. So, getting to the air station, I immediately wanted to be deployed. You know, it's kind of like that, in my mind, that was my whole purpose, you know. And I've heard... I've talked to other people and they'll say things like, uh, "Like, oh, it's wartime. Why would you sign up now? And it's like, well, you have your job. You went and learned how to do it and now you don't want to execute it. Like, no, I did this on purpose. Like, I wanted to do it. So at the air station, you know, I had uh, buddies that were uh, part of what we'd call a detachment. So you have. The, the airfield itself, where, you know, there's active squadrons of planes. They're doing their training. We're doing our training. You know, pilots have to get a certain amount of what they call an operation per month. So they need to, uh, you know, do a bunch of low approaches. They're, they're, there's traffic all the time. But the, the detachment was really where I wanted to be. So it's, uh, the detachment is a separate unit. You have to get orders and you get, you report to the detachment. So, you know, talking to my buddies um, that were in the detachment and, you know, I was trying to grease the wheels with the leadership of the detachment to say, hey, give me orders. I want out of the air station. Let's go do this thing. So, you know, I got my qualifications at the tower and uh, when
0: the time came, you know, I, I got orders. In 2005, Tyler was sent to Marine Air Control Squadron 1, Detachment Alpha, the deployable unit on rotation to Iraq at the time.
1: I don't know how much I had to do with that, but I was very actively requesting. And uh, I'd gone up to the debt with my friends to, you know, basically schmooze and try to get my name on a list, you know. So uh, I got orders to the detachment and uh, immediately you just start uh, getting ready to go to Iraq.
0: I remember this time period very clearly because us having made fast friends and living together, you know, we were really close. We hung out every weekend. We trained together at the air station. And so once I knew you had uh, deployable orders and we're going to the debt, I was like, Oh dude, I want to go too. like, I don't want to be left behind. And so I did the same thing and went up to the debt and like begged the master sergeant or the gunny at the time. And uh, there was no, there was just, I didn't make the list. Right. So you got on there and somehow I didn't. And so they were like, sorry, we can't take you. So I remember very clearly the day that you were leaving, not necessarily for Iraq that day, but you were leaving for the detachment. And then shortly you were going to be leaving for deployment. And, um, I remember we had this moment like at our door where I was like saying bye to you, you know, I was like, all right, man, Tyler's going. Like, I hope he doesn't get killed. I hope everything's cool. Like, you know, maybe I'll see him out there. And, um, I've always had this disdain for the actor uh, Kirsten Dunst. Not personally. I don't have any problem with her, but I just don't like her acting, and I didn't like the roles she was picked for, and I always was like, who picked this lame actress? Anyways, and so, of course, Tyler uh, had taken a copy of, like, 17 Magazine, which had a spread of her, and had pasted it to the wall of our barracks room just so I could wake up every day to Kirsten Dunst's face, which was, of course, a hilarious joke. So the day he was leaving, I had this really serious moment where I, you know, Grabbed Tyler by the shoulder and looked him in the eyes. And I was like, all right, man, if there's anything I can do, you just let me know. And Tyler looked at me real serious. And he was like, yeah, Dan, there's like one thing. And I was like, anything, man. He goes, just don't take the poster of Kirsten Dunst down until I return from deployment. And I was like, you motherfucker. <laughs> that was my only request. <laughs> and so, of course, when he said that. I couldn't risk that I like jinxed his deployment by not caring and doing it. So the whole time he was gone for nine months, I had to leave this Kirsten Dunst poster up in my room staring at me and I hated it every day. But it was like, I felt like as long as Kirsten Dunst was staring at me, Tyler was going to be all right on deployment. And so I just had to do it. Right, right. If you broke the pact, yeah, for some reason, you would be to blame. I couldn't take that responsibility. Yeah, I couldn't be responsible for something (laughs) happening to you just because I couldn't handle looking at her face.
1: Okay, so we are at the debt. Uh, We're getting deployed. So the, the deployable unit, you know, obviously, they've been around for a while. And for a lot of people at the debt, this was their third deployment. And I'm it's my first appointment. So I am twenty years old and a lot of people with the debt not I mean, not a lot, but you know, they're a few years older than me. They've just been in the military a little longer, so they've already been out there twice. And so it kinda goes back to again, like the uh the unknown of boot camp and what to expect and everything else. So now I'm doing it all over again, like, all right, we're going to Iraq. What what do I need to bring? What you know, it's like you get kinda You try to over-prepare for something that, like, you can't really describe to someone. So, that's weird. It's a weird experience, you know, and you go out there and you do your job. And I remember, so we got there. We weren't even there for, I think, 24 hours maybe. And uh, rockets came in and they store their aviation fuel in these giant, like, 50,000-gallon bladders, all this jet fuel and one of those rockets hit a bladder of jet fuel and this like thick black smoke was just burning for well over a day and so that was kind of like you know you try to do all this preparation and like know what to expect you get out there and you get rocketed immediately it was like wow okay this is real
0: you know and this was out this is out in western iraq al Assad.
1: this was uh central iraq we're in uh, al Assad. yeah okay central western yeah so yeah that was kind of uh you know we got uh, we got a good amount of attacks they you know basically it seemed like about every 3 weeks we would get something launched at our base so i kind of assumed you know hey the military we get paid every month and now that i'm out of the military we get paid every 2 weeks i guess iraq they get paid every 3 weeks you know <laughs> coming out <laughs> buying their uh their ammo and <laughs> giving us hell right <laughs> So, uh, while we were out there, uh, they have a radar system, uh, pretty sophisticated. So, what they can do is when a projectile comes in at the base, this, this radar system can measure the trajectory and apply simple physics and know exactly where that projectile came from. So, working in the tower, you know, we'd hear explosions and we'd immediately scramble attack helicopters and, you know, they would know exactly... You know, hey, fly heading 255. Like, they're driving away from that location right now. It was them. So, that was real interesting just to see. You could scramble an attack helicopter basically immediately.
0: Right. So, Tyler went on to do other things we'll just talk about in a second. But this station, I ended up at the same station in Iraq like a year later or something like that. So, I remember similar things. Yeah, a couple of times a month. And I remember seeing you in Al-Assad. Right. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, we did run into each other. And I remember the pervasive rumor going on about these attacks is that they would leave, when it was mortars at least, they would leave dry ice in a mortar tube with the round at the yes. top. What it, what that meant is by the time the mortar was firing into the base, the people that set up that mortar were long gone because they yes. knew that we would send a, a force of helicopters or a gunship or whatever right. to go blow up that location, right? Did you hear about that as well?
1: Oh, Absolutely. That was certainly the rumor, and I don't even think that was a rumor. I'm pretty sure that was reality. So, this being a podcast about war films, you know, I'm sure the majority of people have seen that iconic, you know, it's like everybody knows what a mortar tube is. You know, the guy grabs the mortar, puts it in the tube, drops it, and then pow, that thing launches. So, what they do is they take the mortar and wedge an ice cube so that the mortar stays at the tip of the mortar tube. Now they can leave. And then, yeah, as the, the ice cube melts, eventually.
0: It'll drop when the ice melts.
1: Exactly. And they're, you know, a half hour away. Who knows how far away, right? And then so these mortar tubes just start going off and there's nobody around. You know, they had their,
0: their clever tricks. After that first deployment, he was attached to the Marine Expeditionary Unit on the USS Boxer for another deployment which was extended twice from six months to nine.
1: That first appointment had a guy named uh, Lieutenant Roberts. Uh, turned out to be quite a good guy. I'm a big fan of him. So he was, you know, a pretty fresh lieutenant. However, he uh, he was enlisted. So they'd call that a Mustang, right? So he got his degree while he was enlisted. And then upon completion, basically went to officer candidate school, becomes a lieutenant. And, you know... Th- there's a good amount of respect for a Mustang officer, right? They uh they, they went through everything that we went through as well as being an officer. So there's kind of a like they've been around the block. Like a regular lieutenant is just a new guy. Right? Yeah, he
0: has at least five years of working experience exactly. over your fresh lieutenant out of the academy or out of or out of college. Right.
1: And from our perspective, it's like, oh, yeah, they went to officer candidate school, no big deal, like enlisted boot camps where it's at. So, there's kind of like this added layer of like, okay, they know what's up. So, Lieutenant Roberts gets selected. You have to get selected for what they call a uh, Marine Mobile Air Traffic Control Team. Now, this team is attached to what they call a Marine Expeditionary Unit. And what that is, is a whole fleet of ships driving around a bunch of Marines and a bunch of equipment. We had tanks, helicopters, all kinds of stuff. So Lieutenant Roberts gets selected. He gets selected to run the 15th MU mobile air traffic control team. And now he gets to select his team. And that's
0: an MMT for short.
1: That's an MMT, yes. So he selects me as one of the air traffic controllers. So uh, yeah, did my first deployment. And then when... You know, we do kind of like a six-month-on, six-month-off rotation in the debt, more or less. You know, the next deployment was uh, actually the deployment you went on, but uh, that's when we were training for the Mew. Um, There's a lot that goes into, you know, getting everybody up to speed for the Mew.
0: Well, let's get into that because I think that's one of the most interesting parts of your story and certainly something I did not experience. So, I've I've asked you about it many times. Yeah. So, what is the air traffic stuff that you did that was different from regular air traffic control in a control tower? Again, for people who don't know the job that well. Yes. And then because you were going to be on a helicopter, you were required to do the helo dunker, SEER training, yeah. your, your actual MMT training, whatever that's called, where you actually practice setting up an airfield.
1: Now, and I don't want to, I don't want to give away, you know, there's- there's trade secrets in the military. Now I I'm sure anybody who is a little bit interested can figure out, you know, what I'm talking about. But I don't wanna I don't wanna break any kinda confidentiality agreements with the military. Not that I currently hold them, but I would prefer that our secrets stay as secret as they can be.
0: Yeah, you don't wanna you don't wanna endanger anyone right. who's actually going go through this process. And it's like yeah, it's like uh You know, we
1: have a a tactical advantage by knowing what we know and keeping that information safeguarded against people who might not know it. So, I get selected for the Mew, uh, meet the team, it's six people. We have the Lieutenant, we have a Staff Sergeant, which is an E6, he is kind of the enlisted leader, and then we have two air traffic controllers, we have a Communications Technician, they're responsible to, you know, maintain the the radios, you know, anything we're going to communicate with, uh, you know, the aircraft. And then we have a NAVAIDs technician. aids is short for Navigational Aids. So what that is, is, you know, we have equipment where the aircraft are able to dial into what we have and they can know in relation where we are, where they are. It just kind of gives a... A spatial knowledge, you know? So, uh, that that comprises the team, those six people. So, get selected for the Mew and immediately we are attached to a, a squadron, right? The squadron runs the show and we're just kind of a, a subset to provide capabilities to the aircraft on the Mew to complete whatever the mission is. So... We, uh, we go out to Arizona for quite some time, and we're learning how to set up airfields basically on a straight enough piece of pavement. That way we can land you know, C-130s, we can do refueling operations in the middle of nowhere. Now, a caveat that comes with being a six-man team doing this kind of thing in the middle of nowhere is you provide your own security. So, there's only six of us. You know, and the runway is long enough that you could land a a fully loaded C-130. And
0: just for the visual here, you said pavement, but in the field, we're also talking about just straight up dirt. Like you can do this on a straight piece of dirt.
1: Yes. And we did that out in, you know, Arizona, nice uh, sun bleached dirt, but not, you know, no weeds and stuff. Yeah, you can can land one of these rough and tumble C-130s in some... Trashy land, you know? Right. Um, But yeah, ideally, yeah, you want a straight piece of pavement. You know, if that's impossible, then it's impossible, right? But ideally, we'd like to set up there. So, we're out there learning how to set up these runways. So, just that fact alone that it's a runway, there's thousands of feet between me and the rest of my team. I was a pretty fast guy back in the day. So, I was selected what they call the runner. As soon as we define the landing edge of the runway, I take off running and I'm counting my steps. We have, uh, you know, a specific way that we set up this airfield. That way, no matter where we're at night or day, the pilots know what to expect as far as the length, width, dimensions of the runway, right? So, that way it doesn't matter. They don't have to be familiar they know f- they're familiar with our process. Therefore, they know what to expect. And, uh, and we, we test it, you know, so I've made that run bunches of times. And that's what we're doing, getting ready for the Mew. Now, I am wearing a backpack with two radios, with two batteries in it, with two spare batteries. I have my rifle. I have my rounds. I have my flak jacket. Helmet. Yeah, I'm running over 3,000 feet straight. After I'm done and I'm setting up the trailing end of the runway, while we're in country training, they come out and measure it and see how far off I am. And they're very specific. Like, you know, you need to be pretty dead on. So, what I do is, uh, you know, grab a handful of rocks and every 500 steps, I can pitch a rock, right? But you get tired as you're basically on a full out sprint, fully loaded with gear So after you do it a handful of times, now it's like, okay, for the first 500, I actually throw my rock at 490. For the next 500, you know, so you can kind of gauge my my stride is going to get less the further I go. Repetition is the only way to figure out how far these markers need to be apart.
0: Are you always using something like rocks or do you have official markers like a light or something like that or... So
1: I'm using the rocks just to count because as you're running, the last thing you want to do, get, you know, 2000 feet away and oh shit, where was I? Right. Am I at (laughs) 2000 or 1500? Ah, look guys, we got to start over, right? You can't, you can't do that in the middle of Iraq. So I just scoop up some pebbles and that's kind of my way to just, I only have to count to 500 and I can just keep running and keep pitching rocks. Now, every 500 feet, yes, I take uh, one of these markers and it's just like, uh, it's uh, very brightly colored. And so, I just drop one of those onto the ground and then the the rest of the people on my team, they're going to come set up that marker and they're going to set up the marker on the other side of the runway. So, they're going to define the width and everything else. But they can't do that until I get to the end of the runway. So, the officer is at the start of the runway. And by the time I get to the end of the runway, I hold up one of those markers so the Lieutenant can see it. Now the rest of the guys, they're going to line up in between me and the Lieutenant left and right to make a perfectly straight 3,500 foot runway. So by the time you get out there, obviously you're pretty tired. And I, uh, I'd always pack, I had like this little fishing seat that I got from Walmart for like 10 bucks so, I just strap that to the outside of my backpack. That way, I could run all the way down, I could set up my chair, I could put my backpack on the chair, strap that marker to the backpack, and now I can start setting up the end of the runway without standing there while everybody else aligns the runway. So, we get this whole entire thing set up relatively quickly. But the caveat that comes with that, providing your own security, there's only six people and we're spread out across quite the distance.
0: And I, in my mind, I remember the number 45 minutes. Does that make any sense to you in terms of how the time limit or how long you were trained?
1: There was a time limit, but we were doing it in under 30 minutes. Holy shit. Yeah. We were hitting like 24, 28 minutes. And I mean, we did this multiple times to the point where it's like, come on, guys. Like, we got this. And
0: the sooner you get it right, the sooner you can stop fucking practicing. <laughs>
1: exactly. And it's like... Dude, literally, they were, like, pretty nitpicky. And they were they were measuring our distance, like, in a truck, like, you know, where you have, like, the odometer and, like... Chilling. Yeah, exactly. And they just, like, <laughs> driving this truck up to me, and I'm super out of breath. I, you know, I just took off running for over half a mile with a total of, you know, probably close to 200 pounds... You know, including, like, flak jacket uniform radios.
0: That much? Holy shit. You meant 200 pounds total weight, not 200 pounds in your backpack. Yeah, yeah. In my back, we're talking over 100
1: pounds. These radios are from the Vietnam era. Uh, They can run VHF and UHF frequencies. So, I mean, for Vietnam era times, it's pretty good technology, but... The Marine Corps isn't crazy about getting funded, so we're still using <laughs> right. the same
0: radios. They work fine. We got to wait till some other service throws it away, and then <laughs> right. someone in the Marine Corps is in charge of dumpster diving and be like, oh, check out, we got a brand new radio. <laughs> All these radios. <laughs> Classic. Right. These aren't Prick 19s, right? There's something else? Yes, they are. Okay, so these are the old emergency radios we yes. used to have in the tower as well. Yes. Cool. Same radio. Heavy <laughs> as shit. Yeah,
1: they're like like a big old briefcase. And then the battery is super heavy too. And yeah,
0: light duty like aluminum wasn't exactly the same. <laughs> no, they were Yeah, those things are
1: every bit of eighth inch steel construction. <laughs> yeah. And these batteries <laughs> might as well be like an ATV battery and I have to bring spare batteries. Oh man. So you don't have a whole lot of room in your bag to like you know bring something to do and like you got to bring your water with you like yeah it's just you're loaded down it's heavy man and yeah so this guy rolls up in a truck he's like man you're like 35 feet long it's like dude shut <laughs> up <Like>, he's <laughs> <it's> like
0: no <laughs> let's, let's run it back one more time and it's like dude you gotta be kidding me so air traffic control wise You would be the man on the radio. You'd actually be talking to these aircraft in, clearing them to land, because any dumbass can be taught to run, relatively speaking, and drop shit off. But you have some skills that you're bringing to this equation, the same way the NAVAIDs techs are, the same way the contacts are. So you got this whole thing set up. And then in reality, not in training, but in the field, what would happen at this point?
1: So again, I don't want to divulge too much of the capabilities of what an MMT is able to perform in theater, which would be another word for in, you know, country where you're an aggressor, I guess,
0: for lack of a better word. Conducting combat operations.
1: But I'm comfortable saying this just because it's the obvious reason why you would need an MMT. Let's say you have a bunch of attack helicopters and you need to really put the pressure on an area. What we do... As an MMT, we set up this runway. We'll land a C-130. The C-130 has, I don't know how many thousands of gallons of fuel, right? So we'll land the bird, turn it around, and those guys will jump out the back and they'll run hoses to various points that we set up. We'll set up these like little areas where we could land a helicopter, And then one of the guys that was on the C-130 can refuel that helicopter and they can get right back at it, you know, and they can sustain for a lot longer. So the C-130 can land, turn around, that way they're ready for departure, deploy these hoses. Now, as an air traffic controller, right, anybody could uh, set up a runway and just let a fixed wing aircraft land there. But uh, where we come in is we'll have, you know, basically a pattern where, and a pattern would be an air traffic control term where, you know, you've heard the term holding pattern. So we'll create a pattern where, you know, these helicopters are following each other in an imaginary circle in the sky. So what we can do is clear them to land at various points that's set up, you know, adjacent to the runway. So we can have these helicopters. Literally sustain an entire area, region, whatever you want to call it, for quite an extended period of time. So, we clear the fixed wing C-130 to land. They do their thing. We have our points set up for the um, helicopters. And then we do their traffic control to make sure that they aren't going to bump into each other make sure that the area is clear, just apply the principles of air traffic control in a very expedient, safe way in the middle of nowhere with radios that are in my backpack. So that's kind of the purpose of uh, what an MMT provides in in Iraq, right? Or anywhere.
0: Right. Your air traffic skills in this situation... You're not 100% necessary, meaning the pilots could figure it out on their own, but you're an added layer of safety where you're keeping an eye over the big picture. You know where all the helicopters are landing and taking off. They're announcing it to you on the radio. If the pilots had to do that, it's not that they can't handle it, but that's an additional task while they're already busy doing other things. You're taking the load off of the pilots to be able to keep an eye over that. Same way somebody's keeping security for you so that while you're doing your job, someone else is maintaining physical security with weapons and stuff. It's all about subdivision of labor so that everyone can focus more on their primary task
1: a pilot especially a helicopter pilot right they get a lot on their mind plus you know they're in theater they might be shooting guns and missiles like getting shot at right let's uh let's try to spread out the stress and the the mental acuity amongst as many people as we can in an organized fashion last thing you want to do is have some you know pilot stressed out trying to talk to his buddy pilots they are also got their heads spinning you know it's just uh it's tumultuous
0: obviously the first mission is to bring in fuel for these helicopters to keep them going and sustain combat operations longer I was wondering, do the C-130s bring in other stuff and you continue with gear and ammo, et cetera, or do you try, for those maybe less imminent things, do you wait to be able to set up a more solid runway or use an existing airfield, et cetera? Kind of what what are like the next few days worth of the operation?
1: Right. So the, the operation is, you know, the base we were at was just over 20 miles from the city, right? And there's a lot of... And I don't, I don't want to get into, you know, the reality of what, uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, our goal was basically to eliminate the threat and take over and restore the city of Al-Rupi, which is on the Syrian border. So, you know, if there's like a giant collaborative mission where the idea is we need to have some legitimate force in an area over a sustained amount of time. You don't want to have those helicopters go and do what they do, run out of gas, and then they got to go all the way back to base and come all the way back. So what we do is we create an opportunity where, no, you can be... We're right here. You know what I mean? You can pop over, gas up, and you're right back in the mix. There's no delay. You're not taking, let's say... 10 helicopters, but then every 15 minutes, two of them have to go back to base. Everybody is right there on, to, on it. You know what I mean? So that's kind of the, the capability that we can provide.
0: So it sounds like there's a lot of additional training required to do this. Certainly, I didn't do any of this in basic air traffic or in my experience working in actual towers and radar rooms. What other kinds of training did you have to go through in order to be qualified to fly around as crew on a helicopter and all the other tangential things that you have to, you know, from the boat to the helicopter to the operating field that you have to do?
1: So, um, you know, and again, kind of the common theme, just like joining the Marine Corps, it was like uh, going on the Mew, there's this whole new section of like what's boat life what do you do as a marine on the boat and so you know you're talking to as many people as you can to try to get like a heads up on what the what the experience is going to be and like what to prepare for and you know again i'm back in the unknown the advice i heard was well you know what do you do on the boat that was a concern of mine because you spend you know a good amount of time sailing across the entire pacific ocean that being said, the advice was like, man, you're going to be bored a lot. You know, there ain't much to do on the boat as a Marine. So, I heard about this position called forward observer. And, you know, in a nutshell, what that is, is you are the guy hanging out the side of a UH-1, which people typically call a Huey. It's like that classic Vietnam era six-seater helicopter or whatever, right? Right,
0: CCR starts playing automatically in the background as soon as you're operating one of those things. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
1: So it's like, you know, there's a a position on the Marine Expeditionary Unit called the Forward Observer. And I was like, that sounds cool. So you just basically hang onto a machine gun on the side seat of this helicopter. I was like, man, I want to do that. Talked to my lieutenant I said, hey, I want to be a forward observer. You know, I know that this position exists. How do I do it? Turns out there's a bunch of uh, courses you have to take because what if you're on a helicopter in Iraq, it goes down, you're behind enemy lines right now. You know what I mean? You don't have communication. All you got is a gun and everybody that was on the helicopter with you.
0: Or not. You might be by yourself too.
1: Right. So it's like, uh, how do you manage that situation? some training that you have to do in the event that that situation was to occur. So, uh, yeah, we, I remember we did this thing, they call it uh, the dunk tank. So, what they'll have is, uh, you know, to simulate you're in a helicopter that goes down in the ocean. How do you prepare for that? How do you teach people? A lot of combat training is how are you going to manage the stress? How are you going to, how do you appropriately navigate a helicopter crash in the ocean. Wow, that's that's kind of crazy, right? So they got this thing, which is basically just a fuselage of a helicopter attached to this, you know, hydraulic arm that they can just dunk inside of this huge pool. So we did this training where, you know, and they start you off kind of easy. You're in your uniform and you got this like rubber rifle to simulate a rifle. Obviously, we're not going to take our real ones into, you know, chlorinated water and ruin them. So, they have this, like, M16A1 rubber rifle, which, you know, we all saw in uh, boot camp as well. You know, it's just chunky thing. So, you you sit in this, you know, fuselage. There's no cockpit, and there's no back end, but there's, like, the doors and the windows. So, you sit in there, and uh, you put your seatbelt on, you got your little rubber rifle, and it's just like you would if you were in this aircraft. And I... If memory serves me well enough, I think this was a CH-46, which is that, again, classic Vietnam-era two-prop transport helicopter.
0: Tandem helicopter.
1: Exactly. If you saw an image, you'd recognize it immediately. So, uh, you're sitting in this thing, I'm strapped in, and uh, they start you off easy, and they just drop you into the water, and the whole thing goes all the way underwater, and... uh, the training is like, just give it a sec, because as soon as that helo hits the water and it's sinking, you know, there's all these currents running around on the inside of this fuselage. So it's like, let all of that just kind of chill and you have to relax because like, as you're going in, you're going to take a big, deep breath, but you know, like for the first, like two seconds, don't even move. Right. Like, because, you know, you don't want to create chaos. You don't want to be fighting these currents that are going to be like whooshing around. So it's like, just relax, you know, and it's like, even that is kind of like the first stage of like, all right, you know, everything's fine. We're in a crashed helicopter, but everything's fine. Right. Which is, you know, goes against kind of, uh, your, your common instincts and what you've been taught. So you kind of just chill and this whole thing's starting to sink deeper, deeper into the pool. And then, okay, unbuckle your seatbelt and, uh, you know, make sure you got your rifle with you. You know, use the seats, use the windows, go to the door and get out and swim to the edge of the pool. Right? And then so as the days progress, you get more and more difficult. And then by the end, what they do is, again, you're strapped in. And what they do is they have these goggles that are spray painted on the inside black. So, you know, you put those on and like if you take them off, that's a sign that you panicked and you fail, right? You got to try it again. You got to learn the inside of the helicopter in your mind. You have to be able to like understand where you are, where you're sitting, where the door is, where everybody else is. And you have to blind navigate outside of this fuselage that's underwater. So, you strap in. You got your goggles. You got your rubber rifle. They sink this whole thing in the pool and then flip it over upside down. You can't see anything. Imagine, you know, your eyes are glued shut. Imagine you are in a helicopter that crashes into the ocean in the middle of the night. Right? How are you going to get out? Well... It would be helpful if you've practiced. If you look at a helicopter, you see this, you know, it's an an airframe. So, it's meant to be light. However, the engines are on the top, you know, with the rotors and everything else. So, typically, when a helicopter hits water and starts sinking, all that weight that's up on the top of the helicopter is going to tip you straight down. So, that's something that happens commonly. So, that's why when they train for it, you know what I mean? It's like instead of everybody just training the straight normal drop, but then in real life, that thing flips over underwater in the middle of the night. Well, that's going to be another instance where people might start panicking, right? And that's what you never want. You can't panic. You got to... Act cool, pretend like you've been here before and and do what you're supposed to do.
0: And I imagine that egressing the aircraft, you have to realize which way the rotors are because they might still be spinning and they're super dangerous. You have to know which way is up, even in the dark, right?
1: Exactly. And so, you got to make sure that you're under control as well because you're following the guy out the door that's to your left. And so, if he's freaking out or you're freaking out and you get right behind him, he's going to kick you right in the head with his boots on, you know? So, it's like, remain calm. It's just like the, the same drills from when you're a kid where it's like, you know, just settle down. You took your big breath of air. You know you got a good minute to get out of there. Orderly fashion. Everybody exit the aircraft. So, yeah, they dunk this whole fuselage into this pool, flip it upside down. And then once everything kind of settles, that's when you unbuckle and, you know, you better have that rubber rifle in your hand, right? If you surface without the rifle, you might as well have failed, right? Because the expectation is you come out with your rifle ready to go. Otherwise, you had better be at the ocean floor trying to find your rifle, you know? So, another requirement to be a forward observer is you have to go through what they call seer school. Now, that's an acronym, military's famous for them, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. Now, that process, it is kind of a linear process when you think about it. The premise of this course is that you are in an aircraft that crash landed and uh, you don't know where you're at. So, survival is number one. How can you feed yourself? How can you stay hydrated? Evasion. Let's say you're in a hostile country. You want to keep a low profile. You don't want to be burning big old fires in the middle of the night because people might be looking for you. And then uh, resistance. Now we're getting into more of a, uh, a POW type situation where let's say the area you crash landed, well they're looking for you and let's say they found you now what do you do and then uh, the escape portion is okay you're in a POW camp how do you get out of there so that was an interesting course and it's um I don't want to get braggadocious but it's kind of a an upper echelon training course you know it consists of i want to say like a week and a half or so of classroom type stuff Where it's like, you know, you're sitting in a classroom and they're they're just telling you, hey, this is how you can find water in a desert. This is how you can kind of create water. You know, they have, you know, all these kind of techniques and methods. You kind of go through the whole process, you know, sitting at a desk, learning about it, uh, people that have done it. The instructors, there was a bunch of Force Recon guys. Uh, There was a couple of uh, Navy SEALs that were in my class. The experience, if you were to add it all up, of all the people that are contributing to this training program, it's heavy duty on people that have been in some sticky situations.
0: So you're definitely the small fish here, aside from your own personal life experience of maybe hunting and fishing with parents and stuff like that. You definitely haven't gone through anything like this in the military yet, whereas some of the students and certainly the instructors are experienced at this.
1: Yeah. So then, uh, and you know, common theme again, what do you expect? What, you know, what do I, what, how can I prepare myself for this? And it's kind of like, well... Just like boot camp is just like, you know, you you try to chit-chat and learn as much as you can, but word of mouth versus being there are 100 miles apart. So, uh you go through all your classroom stuff, and uh they kind of break you into platoons, basically. So, you know, you got your class, and then the class is divided into quarters, and that would be like your platoon. And then everybody has a battle buddy, which uh it's like you... And your battle buddy in case over the course of training, let's say, you know, you fall over, land on a rock and break your arm, right? Somebody's there to at least like, hey, you know, we got a problem. Um, That way, nobody's just like dying in the woods alone.
0: Yeah, uh, mountaineering uses a similar principle. And it's that if you're by yourself, a lot of survivable situations become fatal versus just having a person there to call help when you can't is already a way to avoid a fatality.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, real quick. I have a former SFO buddy who was a combat controller in the Air Force, like the for real Special Forces shit. And he went two and a half years into the pipeline and then broke his back in a jump. And so he had to get pulled out medically, but tiny, tough motherfucker. And um, basically, a lieutenant in his class took the like... Resistance evasion part really fucking seriously and ran to the front of the class and started beating the fuck out of an instructor in the middle of like a classroom session. (laughs) Got pulled off, got kicked out of the school. But I was like, "Can you kick him out and still give him an A for effort?" I'm like, "God damn, (laughs) dude! Seems like you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you know?" Right.
1: (laughs) So yeah, we get through all the classroom type stuff, which you know, I mean, that could be a whole eight-hour conversation. So then the, the field portion begins, right? And you kind of, you know, you start out as the whole class. And, uh, you know, the highest-ranking student is kind of the leader. This is like a fictional scenario that you crash an aircraft in a hostile-slash-unknown-hostile hostile territory, right? So you're going to... You're gonna be minding your p's and q's. So we kind of start out. It's the whole class, and we're like learning what plants we can eat. the The field course is in Southern California, and I remember it was like November. A desert environment in the winter gets real cold. So I'll I'll be able to tie that factoid into another story later. But we, uh, you know, we're going through the course. My class, the classroom. Is in uh, Coronado, which is that little island just off of San Diego,
0: where the seals train.
1: Yes, that is correct. And then our our, our field work, I'll just say it's uh, it's outside of Temecula somewhere. I don't know exactly where it is, but it's like uh, you know, it's away from the ocean. I mean, it's is very deserty. You know, it's like some scrubland. I would describe it. But then, yeah, I know they have a sear course like in Maine. Where, yeah, the whole premise is, like, the same thing, except you're in the snow. I would imagine that course was kind of framed around, like, the Cold War, where, like, what if you crash land in, like, Siberia? How are you going to make it home alive?
0: Right. Good luck.
1: And then I know that they have a a desert-specific one, which is even more desert than where I went. And then I think they do have a jungle one. They train for, you know, I guess any kind of environment where you're going to find yourself. At any rate, yeah, that's where I was. And uh, yeah, so we're we're going through, uh, learning, you know, the classroom stuff, like, you know, how do you procure water? You know, and they have these like fancy little tricks where you could dig two holes in the ground and then uh, put your hand at the bottom of the hole and kind of dig a little pass through to the other hole. Now you have the ability to, Build a fire that's underground so nobody can see and then the hole adjacent to the fire hole acts kind of like a reverse chimney where the the flame underground can still get fed with fresh, fresh oxygen so you can cook, you can boil water. And you could do that all with nobody being able to see you. It's not like a bonfire where you'd use that to like keep warm. It's literally for you know necessity only. you know you don't want to be putting off a bunch of smoke smell, a bunch of light in the middle of the night. you're going to be you're going to be found immediately. you know any local will be able to see that light at the end of the field. Hey, what's going on out there? So yeah there's there's tactics to stay concealed. And uh, that, th- those are kind of a lot of the items you learn. So we're all out there, and then as the class progresses, you know, a few days later, we're kind of split up to where each platoon, aka a quarter of the class, has an instructor, and we're kind of doing stuff as a smaller group. And that's when you know they they kind of do this thing where they're like, "Look, you're out. It's November." It gets real cold in the middle of the night. Like, you guys don't have tents. We have, like, this little backpack of, like, it's, the backpack is made out of, like, shredded up parachute material. So, that's a common material you'd find if you were in a plane wreck, you know, and you have, like, you know, a couple little lists. And then you got a compass and we had, like, a little laminated map because we did, like, land navigation which, you know, it's like, all right, you know, they give you all these coordinates and it's all day. You're hiking like, I don't know, miles and miles and miles, and you gotta hit all these different points. And then uh each point kind of contained this like bit of a password. And if you get the whole password, like you pass. So we did all this and then uh at the very end is kinda of like the the final the final qualification, right? So what they do is they split us up into two teams it was basically a red team and a blue team or no it was a blue team and a green team and so uh they it's just you and your battle buddy and uh you're in one of these groups and they just give you a a coordinate right and you have your map of the whole area and uh the the coordinate is a long ways away i think we had 6 hours to make it to our you know what they would call like a drop zone where it's like if you make it to the here Like similar to like a video game. It's like if you make, if James Bond makes it to this area, like the helicopter can pick you up and you win the level, right? So that's kind of, I guess, sort of the premise. So they give us the coordinate. We're sitting there, me and my battle buddy, everybody's kind of standing around and we're all looking at our map and uh, we're looking at where we're at. We're looking at where we got to go and we're looking at the train and uh, the instructors just go, what are you guys doing? And as soon as he said that, we could hear, uh, like, vehicles approaching from, like, a ways away. And they were, like, shooting gun. They're shooting blanks. But it's like, if they catch you, you're going straight to the POW camp. So it was, like, oh, my God. So everyone just scatters like cockroaches. You know what I mean? And, uh, and it's another event of chaos um and so me and my battle buddy uh who is this uh navy guy and he was the older guy um i don't even know why he had to do this course but i think he was the oldest guy in the class and he was my battle buddy so me and him take off booking and uh we i find this um like downed tree And uh, I'm like, dude, let's just dive right in there. It looks really tough to get into the middle of this tree. Um, And I was like, nobody's going to find us. And this kind of relates to, uh, you remember when we went camping with uh, Pappas and I scooted off in the middle of nowhere?
0: Yeah, definitely. I remember that. Sorry, this is a departure, but it's pretty
1: funny. So we're camping and... uh, I'm underage and we're with basically our boss. It's like our whole crew. And we're out there. Uh, the park rangers come up to check our IDs. This guy comes up to me. He's like, All right, where's your ID? I go, Oh, okay. Uh, no, no problem. It's, uh, it's in my car. Let me go get it. He goes, Okay. So I just keep walking and I don't know there was how many 15 maybe 20 of us so there's a lot of cars so I just casually pretend that my car is the furthest car and I'm just walking like normal until (laughs) I get to the last car I just take off on a mad sprint straight into the forest
0: so in my in my drunken mind I'm like yeah they're gonna have dogs they're gonna there are multiple stories like this where it's apparent that Tyler's main strategy is distract and then book it in the opposite direction so at this point in my life i mean, no time for this long i'm not surprised to hear the hear his way of thinking here
1: so yeah i i sprint into the forest i don't think anybody even saw me but in my mind i'm like these guys got access to hound dogs and like german shepherds they're gonna get my scent and trend. thermal imaging goggles <laughs> So I'm like, oh, my God. So my mentality is, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go through the most difficult fucking terrain. That way, if it's like a bunch of rangers with a dog, they're like, oh, man, I ain't going to go through these sticker bushes. So I'm going like as fast as I can through like dense, you know, angry foliage.
0: This is like... When a bear gets shot and needs to get away from the hunters, that's exactly what they do. Is they just book it through the most thickest part of the forest. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, I'm in escape mode. So uh, <laughs> that actually turned out to be successful for me. Totally got away with underage drinking that day. <laughs> so fast forward, I'm in the Sears school, and uh, we're on the run from these vehicles in the middle of this, like, scrubland you know, semi-step desert sort of terrain. And uh, the, this this memory kicks in where I'm like, okay, this is what we need to do. I tell my battle buddy, we got to go find the toughest, gnarliest foliage, you know, down trees, whatever. And we're going to hide inside of that. And uh, this guy's on board. He's like, yeah, let's do it. So we go, there's like, a, yeah, this tree fell over, but it was like a, a conifer tree. So it still had needles all over and then it's been there a while. So there's like branches and leaves and like all kind of crap. And we just like dive into this like musty, like mold-ish, damp, gross shit. You know what I mean? And we're like, we're just going to, we're just going to tuck down here for a little while. And we hear people all around, like the vehicles pass us, like, and not that far away, like a vehicle drove like, less than 20 feet away from us. And then, you know, we just kind of chill another 10 minutes or so. Yeah, there's people walking by and I can kind of see out of this, you know, mess that I'm in and I can see these guys, they have these like, I don't know, it's it's like the way someone from Saudi Arabia would dress. They have this whole like blanket situation and they're speaking, they're straight up speaking this like you know, Eastern, European, Western, Russian, Ukrainian type language slash dialect. And so, like, at this moment, like, uh, the realism really sets in. And uh, to kind of paint the picture, is like we've been out in the field for, you know, upwards of a week at this point, really not eating. There's no meals. We're eating, like, I remember eating a lot of cactus. You could take this cactus and uh, I had like a Leatherman So, I was cutting open these cactuses and just, like, eating the slime out of the inside. Buckwheat. Well, and this is November. So, all the buckwheat's basically, like, dead. But you can still, like, grab the buckwheat ends and eat them. So, like, that's really all we're surviving on. So, now fast forward. Now we're doing this thing. Pretty hungry. Pretty sleep deprived. And I think that was, you know, that's intentional to put you under those stresses so that, like, you're not... Doing this course fresh, you're doing it worn out. You know what I mean? Because you know you you want to simulate as close as you can without putting anybody in danger. But that's really the the background of this whole course. So uh, yeah, me and my battle buddy, we're we're tucked into this this mess of crap, and uh, we're just waiting. These people are walking by, and somebody literally walked next to the bush we were in, and uh, they were. Less than five feet away. They were right there. And it's two people. That's impressive. And they were chatting. And I mean, I can can feel my heartbeat in my neck. And I'm trying to not breathe. You know what I mean? Like the realism when you're wore out, tired, hungry. And then like you hear these vehicles and gunshots. And the instructor's like, what are you guys doing? Get out of here. You know, like, like they were worried for us that we were going to get caught. And it, like, it really just kind of, like, it hits you in a wave. Like, whoa, this is real. Obviously, it's not. But again, in this, like, wore out position that your mind is in, it is real. You know? So, uh, me and my battle buddy, we hang out in the bushes. You know, initially, we we're just going to hang out for a minute, but... Uh, you know, as time went on and uh, we noticed how many people are actually a part of this thing, it's, uh, it's a big operation. So, we ended up just hanging out until, like, well into dusk. We just stayed in the same spot and we just waited... So, hours. Well over an hour. And it's like, we didn't hear anybody for a while. So, we're like, okay, I think we're good. So, we get up and we get moving and uh, we get to an area where we cross a road. So, we walk across this road and then bam, like out of a movie, look left, there is a truck coming and we're like, oh shit. (laughs) And we learned like in the course, like when it's nighttime, you know, when you're driving a vehicle and you're looking at the road, which is illuminated by your headlights in the city, obviously you can look around and see things, but out in the middle of a field, When your eyes are exposed to that light, it makes it extremely difficult to look out into the field. Your night vision has been ruined, right? So, me and my battle buddy, we literally jump into the ditch and don't move. And this truck stops, I mean, not even 10 feet from us. We can hear the doors open. People are getting out of the truck. My heart is pounding, dude. And they're talking this, you know, language I don't understand. And me and my battle buddy, like, we're in the ditch facing each other. And it's just like eyes and expressions of like oh shit you know what I mean like we are stressing but they didn't see us there was no reason to assume that like maybe they gave us a pass because we did it right like no like we like before the headlights got to us we were already in the ditch and they happened to stop really close to us so we just stayed there
0: but I'm sure in the back of your mind you also have the suspicion. Are they pretending they didn't see us just so they can jump on us? (laughs) Exactly.
1: So uh, we just lay low and uh, they did their thing and uh, got back in the truck and left. And it's like, dude, that is so weird. You know what I mean? Like, I wish I could have asked the people, you know, their perspective. Like, did you see a person? Is that why you stopped? Like, did you give us a pass? Um, Obviously, I don't know who it was. And there's so many people. And it's like... You know, you couldn't really corroborate a story.
0: Not to mention that, again, reminding everyone in the background, the sleep deprivation and hunger is messing with your senses pretty hardcore. So, in terms of being a reliable eyewitness, you're probably on the lower end of that scale at this point, right?
1: Absolutely. So, yeah, we keep trucking through. Our point we have to get to, yeah, we have six hours to get there. But it like it's also pretty far away, you know what I mean, so it's like all that time we wasted hanging out in that bush, letting everything kind of calm down. the time was still ticking, so you know we're we're trying to pick up the pace, right, and now it's the middle of the night, and we're trucking through, and uh our time's starting to wind down. So, me and the battle buddy are like, oh, I mean, we're starting to get close. We got to get this thing going. So, we, uh, we kind of stop, look at the map, and we got like this, I got this little tiny flashlight where you can like uh, rotate the bezel and you can change the, the lens color, and it's a low power flashlight. So, you can put it on the red lens, which doesn't really, you know, one, it's not going to destroy your night vision. And two, it's not going to send a bunch of light waves where everyone can see it. So we kind of stop, pause for a sec, we check the map, we got a compass out. We're kind of like reorienting after like all this movement has been happening. And uh, we're we're feeling the pressure of running out of time. We we check the map real quick and we're like, all right, we're going to head this way. Let's get trucking. And we start running uh, through this field, and uh, I come like over the crest of this field, and I can see down, and I see a building that's all lit up. I was like, that's <laughs> gotta be it, let's go. So we go over there, we start getting closer and closer, and then uh, like, as we get up to the fence that leads to this structure, there's like a, like a creek in the way. You know, again, I'm in real good shape back in these days and like I can run and jump and I there's no way I could cross this creek. It was pretty big, but took off sprinting. I leapt over the, the creek, kind of like short dog landed it on the side of the creek and then like kind of spilled up onto the, the side of the bank. And uh, I told my battle buddy, because he's an older guy, I was like, I'll just go check it out. And then uh, if it is, I'll just wave you. Like, you're going to have to, like, wade across it or something.
0: Because unlike in the movies, you're doing your best to try and avoid getting your feet freaking soaked two feet down your leg with water, right? It's like any chance you get, it might not look cool. You might look dorky jumping across a creek. But, like, your goal in the cold in November is to try and keep your feet dry, which I feel like in movies, people just, like trapes through creeks like it's no big deal because they're just changing their outfit after this scene and it's like yeah that's not how real life works
1: (laughs) right and it's like uh, one of those nights uh, that we you know slept um, we woke up with frost on us so like I was saying earlier when uh, I had a weird story about the cold so uh, the instructors they were like look table anything you think about like homosexuality or whatever they're like it's gonna get cold you're going to have to everybody spoon each other, right? Everyone's looking around at each other like, I ain't doing that. Like, no way, man. I'm putting no dude's butt in my crotch. But, dude, it got so cold that everyone was cuddling. And we woke up at like 5 in the morning. It's like you can't sleep that long when it's that cold. And we woke up, and I literally had frost on my camis. You know what I mean? I mean it gets cold at night. So yeah, like going across this creek it's a risk, you know what I mean? It's like like in a survival situation. It's like you don't want to take a risk of cutting yourself, getting getting cold. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of factors that you got to stay heads up on. But, you know, we're running out of time and so we just reviewed the map and then uh we kind of we're on like a light jog. We're like, "All right, we got to pick up some time." So uh we see this you know, structure, and there's a fence in front of it, creek in front of that. Get across the creek and uh, get to the fence. Now, this fence is easily 10 feet tall, probably more in, like, the 12 to 16 foot range with barbed wire on top of that. So, I was like, god damn, they're making it tough on us, huh? So, I climb up this (laughs) chain League fence, battle with the, uh, the barbed wire, get over it without, like, cut myself all up, climb down the fence. And then I start making my way to the structure. This
0: whole time convinced that you definitely are supposed to be getting into this place. Right. I'm like, yeah,
1: it's pretty obvious, right? Like, uh, like I didn't recheck the map, but it's like, this is an obvious landmark, like in the direction I need to be going. So I, I, I get into this compound and I start making my way to the building. It's like a giant brick building. Just strolling in. (laughs) Yeah. I walk up and it's like... It's like such and such county women's prison on the wall. That's what it says. (laughs) No way! (laughs) And I'm like oh, wait a minute. They did brief us and say that there's a women's prison out here and we're not supposed to go into it. So I broke into this women's prison. So then I'm like, oh, okay, crap. I gotta get back to my battle buddy. So I rescale this giant chain link fence, <laughs> climb back over the barbed wire, run back across the creek. And I get to my battle buddy. I was like, yeah, dude, that's the prison they told us not to go no into. No one
0: saw you that entire time. Nobody
1: saw me break that's- in out of a minimum security prison. (laughs) Like minimal security, bro. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, they're not murderers. They're probably just like, you know, minimum security women. So yeah, I broke in and out of this prison. I get back to my battle buddy. I was like, nah, bro, like that's definitely not the spot. So we bust the map out. So uh, now we're really running out of time. Reassess the map. And uh, now we're in like single digit minutes. So uh, pull out the compass, figure out where we're at, where we're going. And uh, we got it on lock. And right at that same time, we see two other individuals at the far side of this field we're in. We see them. We're like, oh, look at that. We don't know if it's uh, fellow classmates or if it's like the people that are hunting us. So uh, I just take my little flashlight and I just like kind of do a little like signal type thing. And they did it back to us with also with the red lights. We're like, all right, cool. So we meet up in the middle of this field and collaborate on uh, where we all think we're going. And uh, yeah, we're again, we're single digit minutes at this point for sure. So uh, we all just take off running. We're running through this field, and I ran full blast into a cactus bigger than me. Just <laughs> oh, bam, <shit>. like, like <laughs> face and chest first. Bow! I had spines like all in my uniform and everything. Like, I went down pretty hard. Get back, dust myself off, and keep going. So, there's four of us sprinting down this field. My battle buddy's older man. <laughs> he can't keep up. The whole premise of the battle buddy, I left my battle buddy behind, <laughs> bro. I'm taking off running. He can't keep up. I literally turn around. I look at the watch. He's like, dude, just go. Go <laughs> on without me. So the whole thing was, okay, when you get to your grid coordinate that you're supposed to be at, you're going to see a uh, glow stick. So if you're on the blue or green team, it's going to be that colored glow stick. The instruction is you go up one at a time, touch the glow stick, you win. But there's now there's three of us, and we all pull up to this thing at the same time, and we're literally in minutes to, they're going to like sound the horn and the thing's over. So we can't really separate who goes up, like we all just kind of rolled up in there. And, uh, so you touch the, uh, glow stick and someone just straight tackles me, just blindside tackle. And, uh, they like wrap my leg up. So I'm face down. Um, one of my legs is bent at the knee and then like my, my ankle is like in their chest. So like they got me pinned down and, uh, they do these things called challenge questions. So let's say like, and we filled this out, like in the classroom They're like, all right, what was your first car? Like, oh, Hyundai Elantra. So, like, I, you know, (laughs) you authenticate who you are based on, like, you know, what you've said previously. We wrote this kind of stuff down. So, everybody who passed the course there, uh, we got to sleep in a tent that night. Everybody else, straight to the, uh, the POW camp. So, I think it was me and... Six other people. that were supposed to be my battle buddy, so it was an odd number. So we got to sleep in this tent and they gave us like a thing of crackers and a thing of cookies. And we got to like sleep in a tent for the first time in, I don't know, six days. So the other two Navy SEALs, they made it. This Navy pilot made it. Me and a couple other people that I didn't really know as well. We're in this tent in the morning and we're kind of joking around and then uh, we hear a vehicle pull up a gravel road and stop and we hear people get out and uh, they're like charging weapons and we're all in the tent like, oh, we're we're this big success. We're the only ones that made it. And so we're kind of like joking around. We're like, okay, here it comes. Here it comes. Like they're putting on this big show. So they come in the tent screaming at us (laughs) and all that shit. And I legit have a grin on my face. This guy looks at me dead in the face. He goes, have you better like that fucking smirk off your face. I was like, uh, I said something like, aye, aye. And I'm still grinning. This dude, full power, open hand smash slap right in the face. Wham! I'm like, he rings my bell. They're definitely not joking around. <laughs> so, uh... They drag us all over to uh, the side of the truck and they're like, What's your job? What do you do? They start the interrogation process has started. And uh, yeah, they're getting ruthless and uh, they're, they're kind of roughing us up a little bit. And uh, at the end, there's kind of like this psychological debrief that we do and they kind of go over. Some of the methods to the madness of how they're going to, like, get us to talk and stuff like that. And so, the way I conducted myself in this uh, post-tent situation was poor. Got smashed in the face and, like, uh, you know, again, pretty freaking hungry, pretty sleep-deprived. And so, I kind of spilled the beans a little too much. I gave more than I'm supposed to. You want to stay vague this and that, and I kind of like, kind of gave it away, and so like, uh, in my assessment at the end, that's something where I kind of screwed up, but it is what it is.
0: The standard is like, serial number, social security, rank. Right.
1: They're like, what do you do? You know, what do you do for the Marine? You know, what do you do for the military? And it's like, Well, I have many jobs. Sometimes I take the trash out and it's like, quit fucking around. Like, what do you do? I'm, <laughs> like, oh, some- I'm an air traffic controller. <laughs> Sometimes I burn piss bottles. <laughs> so, uh so after that they load us into the back of this truck and they uh you know military term would be nut to butt, where like uh you know, if you just imagine sitting on your butt with your legs spread out and your back straight up, well, there's another person right in front of you and right behind you. So we're like that inside of this truck. Everybody's hunched down, and they put like a sheet over us. And uh, this truck's driving through. We go to this like, like a, like checkpoint type thing, and uh, they're telling us like, "Don't you fucking say a word." You know what I mean? We're going through this checkpoint. So like everyone like minds their P's and Q's and we hear them talking, like whoever's driving the truck and whoever's at the checkpoint, like pretending like everything's all good, like, all right, man, he, like, slaps the, the truck, like, all right, we're off. And, uh, we go to this POW camp. Oh man, what an experience that was. So we get there and, uh, we see everybody is in basically your, your underwear and a t-shirt. It's the middle of November. I mean, granted, it's the morning; the sun's out, but it's cold, and uh, they, everybody has this uh, like a like a laminated piece of paper with a number on it that they like tie around your neck and around your waist, and you're like, uh, yeah, you're just this POW trash person that, and uh, like you live in this like doghouse basically with a with like a sheet that you could like roll down the sheet. And uh, you got a bucket in there if you have to go take pee. But then you got to roll a sheet back up, and uh, you got to sit in the they call it a comfort block. So you're sitting in this doghouse on a four by four block of wood with your ankles crossed, and uh, the the doghouse is not tall enough for you to stand straight, sit straight up. So you're like hunched over, and like you, your neck has to like support your head, and uh, your knees can't touch the sides of the doghouse, or else they're gonna fuck you up. They're gonna drag you out of there and like So people
0: are watching you.
1: Yeah. So we roll up to this scene where everyone's sitting there, like all our classmates.
0: Are there any women uh students or is this all men?
1: So along with the Mew, the captain of the cause there's like a few units. Like we're the marine mobile air traffic control team, but low altitude air defense is there. And uh like logistics
0: type people. I don't even really know. Like what they attached did. to aviation, but for some side job.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So she is the highest ranked person in this course.
0: So there's one woman in your whole course?
1: I think there was another one or two. But yeah, she's a captain and she's in this course with us. She's she outranks everybody. You know what I mean? Sure.
0: And is there any segregation between the sexes during this whole thing? Or when you're getting stripped down, you're all getting stripped down together. Like, do they differentiate? Yeah, but
1: we're just like, uh, it's it's just under, it's like, yeah, it's nothing like sexual. You know what I mean?
0: No, 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 no. Of course. I was just curious if they like have to separate you out or anything. No,
1: because like you're in literally this row of dog houses. If you're going to go to the bathroom, like there's this Curtain that you roll up and then like throw basically behind you on the roof of this doghouse. So if you go to the bathroom, like you do have privacy, but when you're in it, it's super uncomfortable. So I like just pretend to have to take a piss like every 15 minutes, just like relax in the doghouse for a minute and then roll up the blanket, like get back into my position. But so, anyways, we roll up in the back of this truck, and this is the scene. We see everybody in our. There's only a few of us and everybody else is in these dog houses in this like compound there's like barbed wire fencing and there's like concrete structures and there's like a bunker in there and it's like i don't know it's probably got some sort of like a lot of realistic elements but yeah like in this like main field in the center is where all the dog houses are and uh the the people who run this POW camp they like walk on top of the uh all the dog houses like they're all in like one row um so they'll just like walk and just like watch you you know if you if your knee touches the side and you're trying to relax like they'll get on your case and you know do all kinds of stuff so we roll up we see everybody that didn't make it to the checkpoint in time or got caught whatever and I see my battle buddy. I feel so bad, dude. I'm like, oh, man. I got like I got like a packet of peanut butter crackers and like a cookie. <laughs> and his, his sorry ass sitting at the POW camp all night long, like, toughing it out. i like, dude. Like, I see him and we
0: just make eye contact. And I remember just like, ah, oh, dude, I feel so bad. I'm sorry, just to clarify, so your description of what it's like inside the doghouse and stuff, you're just describing what it's like. You haven't gotten to that point yet. You're still just barely pulling up. Right, I just see this. Because you guys got a 12-hour break from this as opposed to exactly. everyone that didn't make it to their target. Okay, gotcha. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah we pull in and uh, I see everybody and yeah lock eyes with my battle buddy and i'm truly sad and he like later uh you know obviously we see each other again and it's like he's like dude he's like nah i get it he's like dude i was i was out of gas like i i told you to go on without me and i meant it you know what i mean he's like i was i was hoping you were gonna make it he's like dude i just i was worn out i was like i get it man but then yeah in the pow camp they're putting you through another set of ringers of like things that you, I guess allegedly would experience in a legit middle of nowhere POW camp run by Well, they called him a commandant. You know what I mean? So it's like, he's like the, you know, the emperor of this compound. So, uh, and yeah, we do all kinds of crazy stuff. I remember they locked us in these, like, um, like we all went to this building and you go inside of this building and it's a building full of closets that only lock from the outside. So they stuffed us, you're stuffed into a closet. They lock you from the outside. And then, uh, they just play this like ominous music. And like those dudes that were seals were like fucking around. So they were like goofing off and like being loud inside. And like, there's somebody inside of this building and they're like, shut the fuck up. And so they think it's funny. And they're like joking around. And, uh, The guard doesn't know exactly who it is, so he goes. If I hear that one more time, number sixty-five, I'm dragging you out. Like, like makes this threat, and one of the seals does some like goofy, like, "What are you gonna do?" So, so then you hear it. You hear. You hear this closet door, like this door, oh, it's not a closet door, it's like a legit metal door, and uh, you hear, like, some rustling around, and uh, this guy, you just hear, <laughs> 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 this kid just got smacked in the face a bunch of times, and so we're all like, okay, we don't want to, like, you know, injure our friends, so that made us cool down, but that kid took a whopping <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, another thing they did, uh, they locked us in this box and it's like, they have a handful of boxes for like a handful of different sizes of people. And so they just kind of size you up. They shove me in this box and it's like a footlocker. You know what I mean? It's like a little crate with a padlock on it. So they stuff me in this thing and then, uh, there's like a lid and they have to like sit on the lid to like be able to put the padlock on. So I'm like scrunched into this little box. And I fell asleep, so I'm sawing logs. And I guess, uh, I, you know, we'd been in there, like, in that box for over an hour. <laughs> I'm just snoozing, like, taking a break. So they, uh, they're, they like, knocking on all the, like, knocking on the box. They're, like, hey, blah, blah, blah. And I'm snoozing. So, yeah, they get me out of my box, and I wake up. And they're pissed that I, like, took a break, basically. <laughs>
0: Well, they were pissed that you weren't too uncomfortable to fall asleep. (laughs) Exactly. It's supposed to be this, like, terrible thing. And I'm snoozing, (laughs) I remember a particularly intense interrogation. Why don't you tell that story?
1: In the class, we learn about tactics, you know. So you learn about, like, for instance, good cop, bad cop would be an interrogation style. And that was the style that they gave to me. So in the interrogation portion, they kind of, like warm you up to the fact that they have this person that's in like a white colored shirt, allegedly works for uh you know, what is that? Like the Geneva conventions or something like that. And they're also trying to extract information. So it's like, yeah, give your social security number, date of birth, blah, blah, blah. Like there's authorized things that like you give to everybody because, you know, worst case scenario, America is going to find out that you're trapped from some government. Right.
0: Right. Maybe you know more about this than I do. I haven't studied the Geneva Convention, but it would seem that those three little things you're supposed to give to your interrogators are designed so that regardless of what happens later, for example, if you're killed in this camp, someone at the camp has the information of who you are. And so your next of kin can be notified. There
1: is a record that you existed at this place. Absolutely.
0: Not, you're just, not just some random American soldier. Right, here, right?
1: right. Yeah, f- Yeah. <laughs> Mass grave of, yeah, obviously Americans. Who are they? We don't know. I'd agree. That's probably a big portion of why you give that information. So, I go from that little meeting into an interrogation room. Now, this room is set up exactly like you'd see an interrogation room in a movie. It is dingy and dark. There is one lamp like suspended basically by an extension cord, just one light bulb. It's placed in between the interviewer and me, the interviewee on the other side of the desk to where like the front of the desk and the ground and my face and everything is lit up almost like a spotlight where like all I see is like on the other side of the desk, there's a figure in a chair with a window behind him. But like the window is sort of illuminated Um, so I, I can't really see their face at all. So this guy goes into the, the good cop mode and he's, uh, asking me stuff. And by now, like, you know, in retrospect, I got, I got bad grades on my initial encounter with these people, but now I got my head screwed on, right? So I'm giving him the, the rigmarole about, well, I do a lot of things, you know, sometimes I take out the trash. Sometimes I just got to clean the barracks, you know, wax the floors, you know, you're being real vague and obviously goofing around. And then you try to be like, Oh man, I, I I'd like to remember, but God, I'm so hungry and I haven't slept in forever. So you try to coax this interviewer into being kind of the. Like, he's got to cater to me so that I can remember what the information he wants is. And I'm playing it the way I'm supposed to play it at this point. So, uh, he starts to pull the, uh, he brings the bad cop in. He waves his finger, the door opens, and legit Zangief walks in from Street Fighter. This (laughs) giant mountainous human being comes in, and he's like, okay, this guy, like... You know, basically grabs me by the shoulder and uh, turns me around to the wall. And uh, on the wall, about, like, chest height, there is a red box painted on this wooden... The wall isn't wooden, but it's like they took, like, four to six two-by-fours and created this, like cutting board basically bolted it to the wall and painted it red, right? And this guy goes, put your forehead on the red X. (laughs) So I put my forehead on there and he goes, now straighten out your legs and you have to do this thing. They call grabbing rags. So at this point we're back in uniform or no, I'm in uh, like cami bottoms in a t-shirt with this laminated number tied to me. So you have to grab the cargo Pockets of your pants. As an aside, when you're walking around the compound, the guards will try to grab your hand and pull them away from your pants. And if they're able to do that, it's your fault for not grabbing your pants tight enough. And like, they're allowed to slap you, like smack you around a little bit. So he says, grab rags. So this rectangle, whatever you want to call it, is, you know, at chest level. So I got my forehead inside of this box and i gotta walk my feet out and stand straight so I, like my body is at like a 45 degree angle and i'm hanging on to my pants and my forehead is supporting my body against this wall and it kind of hurts right like uh it like puts a lot of pressure on your neck and like you know i can feel like oh it's very uncomfortable and this guy <laughs> he uh Zangief puts his fist in my neck. He goes, I'm going to tell you one time, if you don't tell me what you do for the military, I'm going to punch you as hard as I can in the throat. (laughs) So I'm sitting there, vulnerable AF, hanging on to my pants. And he goes... What do you think about that? (laughs) This is going to hurt like a motherfucker, isn't it? And he just sucked me right in the stomach. And I went down. Because, like, you can't defend yourself. And, like, your neck is all bunched up by supporting the weight of your body. And uh, he sucked me in the stomach. And that was the most welcome punch I ever had in my life. So, at any rate, the good cop then turns to me. And he comes over to the door and he kicks it open. And I'm like getting up. I'm on all fours. And he goes, if you don't tell me what you do, look at that. Do you want that to happen to you? And I look over uh, across the hall. There's a room of fellow classmates legit getting waterboarded. Oh, man. (laughs) And I can see the absolute panic in their face, right? They're like actively. There's like a few of them getting waterboarded at the same time. And there's chaos in this room and I can see people like shaking and it's like, they are straight being waterboarded. Oof. And he goes, look at that. Do you want that to happen to you? And I look at it, I go, absolutely not. And he pulls out a revolver, a it, and points it right in my head. And he goes, last chance. What do you do for the American military? And I go, "I my uh, official title is air traffic control. And so at that point, I've passed the course, right? As far as the, the interview or interrogation goes, and later I found out that if you air quotes die in the interview, they waterboard you and then you get a new interviewer and you have to try it again. <laughs> So, I passed and didn't have to get waterboarded. And again, in retrospect, it's like just in the same vein of why I would want to join the Marines. I joined the Marines because they're the hardest. I wanted to go to SEER school because it's a badass class. And so, now in retrospect, it's like, man, I kind of wish I experienced being waterboarded. You know what I mean? Just to see what it's like because I saw legitimate panic in those other guys' eyes of, like, they, they really think that they're drowning, you know?
0: Well, from what I've read, that's how it's designed, right? Like, you, you can't train yourself out of it. That's how you're going to react.
1: Right. So, it's like, I did what I was supposed to do, and I didn't, you know, get fictionally killed in this scenario.
0: In terms of their training, does that mean that, in the end, you're supposed to give up your MOS and what you do? In real life, you are supposed to tell them?
1: The end goal is to make it home alive. Now, this is as it pertains to my training, right? I'm sure like, uh, like a CIA agent. Now nah, they're probably going to take that to the grave. But like, yeah, to, to divulge my
0: job, I'm not holding on to like... Yeah, you're not giving the coordinates to your home base. You're just telling them what your expertise is. Right, like. yeah.
1: I'm not giving away, you know, yeah, the
0: the launch codes to the nuclear. I suppose you could lie in that situation. I mean, granted, the instructors have a record so they know what your real MOS is. But you could say general aviation. Right. Or I'm aviation supply or something. Like, you could try that, I guess. And I don't know what would happen. but I guess
1: so, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, he put a pistol to my forehead, (laughs) I was like, yeah, guess what? I'm an air traffic controller. Here's my mom's address. And exactly. I'm not, yeah, I'm not giving away, you know, prized information, but I guess, you know, you're sending the message that like, I'm not going to give you my information for free. You know what I mean? I'm going to make you go through all the hoops before I'm going to do that. Now, say in real life, you get captured and you start getting tortured. I don't know anything about that. And I'm not going to pretend I do. But, you know, there is there is a protocol on how to conduct yourself in this type of
0: situation. Right. And you can only train somebody so close to really being tortured.
1: Right. So they're allowed to open hand slap you. And I guess in my case, I later learned they're not allowed to punch you. Zangief fucking socked me, bro. I'm not kidding. <laughs> but I mean, and they're not allowed to, you know, pull out my fingernails.
0: <laughs> right. More extreme torture. And also, I remember you telling me before that these instructors go through a regular review process where essentially their higher-ups and their training are making sure that they are not crossing a line into sadism that is unprofessional in a certain sense, right?
1: Absolutely. You know, and it's like, uh, I remember learning about that case at some university where uh, one group of students was the prisoners and another group of students was the... uh, like the jailers, Mm, mm -hmm. right? And that devolved into like some real creepy, weird shit. And uh, so in the debrief- they talk about that experiment. I don't remember what it was called.
0: The Stanford experiment, yeah, it's pretty famous. Also, some of it's been debunked in the sense that it, like, a lot of it wasn't conducted properly in terms of double blind, et cetera, et cetera. But it still has some interesting results, right?
1: And uh, yeah, absolutely. the uh, The instructors are aware of that experiment and what happened where those people were being like malicious to the the jailies. You know, so, like, yeah, they are mindful of, like, not crossing these boundaries and getting into that deep water.
0: Right. Because you're exposing these deeper parts of human nature that most of us just do not interact with ever. Right. So, that kind of situation has to be monitored both from the prisoner's perspective, but also from these instructors' perspective.
1: Right. And from a training perspective, it's like they do want to elicit fear. You know what I mean? This fear is quite a motivator.
0: Well, and you're mixed in with people like SEALs, who we all have looked into and read about and watched SEAL training, and they're going through, you know, not just the initial buds of, I think, 12 weeks and then whatever part of that is Hell Week, but they have six more months of UDT school, right? So, like, these people are being put through the ringer physically and mentally for a long time, and the camp has to be able to instill fear into those people, too. Right. So, essentially... By association, the threshold at which you have to be trained to suppress your sleep deprivation and hunger and fear is at a special forces level, even though you may not be special forces so that's intense and not something that happens in every training in the military right
1: absolutely that's probably the uh, the most special forces I got in my you know military career, I guess you'd call it but yeah it was uh it was interesting and there's a lot of stuff. The, the psychological debrief is very interesting. But I do think that a lot of that stuff is where the confidentiality of the course. I don't want to go into the whys and hows of, you know, how do you kind of soften someone's mind?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the what is enough for this audience.
1: Right. Because there are techniques and you do learn it. And that's something I don't think I want to tell everybody. Those are things that I think I would rather our military only know. And I guess if you're some sort of like hotshot communist general, you probably know, right? But I'm not going to be the guy blasting it to the world.
0: Yeah, for sure. That's totally respectable. I was going to throw a couple of anecdotes in here at the end. I don't know a buddy of mine who worked air traffic at San Francisco who was Air Force Special Forces was a combat controller. He went to this training as well, and so he gave me some additional details, like uh yeah, that the camp seemed to have a soviet era cold War feel to it where the guards were like Russians, definitely, and he said they added little touches like yours about the dialects and accents was super interesting where they actually got a couple of people who spoke enough of this foreign language to like really seem foreign. He said uh there was one guard there who had a smear of lipstick on and then it went kind of halfway up his cheek and then trailed off and just made him look like a real psycho, yeah, like just little touches here and there. You talked about the music and sort of like, yeah. babies crying and creepy things being played in the background,
1: yeah. Oh, I, I remember telling you so. Uh, when I was talking about the uh, that clock when we we're locked in the closet, that was so it's like you're in this dark closet and uh, there's like probably. Not quite a one inch gap between the bottom of the door and the concrete floor. And uh, every single one of these closets has a speaker. And that's all we listened to was the sound of crying
0: babies. Oof. It was just like a looped track. That's terrible.
1: Yeah. And physiologically, you know, more so for the women, but, you know, just the sound of a crying baby is enough to alter your physical state as far as you know your blood pressure and your heart rate right they're doing things specifically to manipulate you you know and so it's your job to kind of recognize and stay level-headed you know
0: yeah they're attacking it from several different angles and again on top of it you're sleep deprived and hungry and all of that works in their favor right i remember uh some other details that my friend told me of um a couple of people who tried to resist a bit too soon, I guess. And when they first showed up to the camp and they were getting hosed down and everything, there was a particular Lieutenant who was real mouthy and was like mouthing off. Like I'm an American. You can't do this to me, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the guards came up and slapped him across the face so hard that my friend standing three people further down than him saw a spurt of blood and a tooth like fly across the, the pavement across in front of him. And he was like, I don't know if that was in that dude's hand and they're just uh, doing some theatrics here or what, but I'm going to shut my mouth.
1: Yeah, that uh, that first smack that I got coming out of the tent, you know, it was the two seals and we were all kind of like being a little cocky, right? Like we made it, like we're the shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh,
0: so... Just slap that cockiness right out of you.
1: Right, and that whole night, like uh, we were chit-chatting, you know what I mean? It's like we haven't slept at all anyways and it's like we're in a tent with no bedding and no cots, so it's like... You're just, like, gonna lay on the the tarp floor of the inside of a tent. It's not, like, luxurious by any standard. So, like, we're all just kind of, like you know like yeah you like make a pillow out of like your shirt basically <laughs> right. so like we're all just kind of like laying there and we've we haven't been sleeping for shit for days anyways and we're just kind of like shooting the shit hanging out so then in the morning we're up before they come to get us again shooting the shit hanging out and then we hear them so it's kind of like like oh fuck here we go kind of a deal you know right and then uh yeah that first smack Dude, that dude, like, I saw some stars. He smacked the shit out of me. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, okay, it's like this. Got it, you know? And I think it was kind of that juxtaposition of being so laid back for the first time in days and days and days to the abruptness of getting smacked in the face to where, you know, I did kind of, like, lose sight of like what I'm supposed to say and what's appropriate. You know what I mean? It's like they really did do what they were supposed to do and try to, I don't know, make me lose sight of what my training was and it worked. You know what I mean? And so later when we're talking about it, you know, we all had a debrief individually with like a psychologist and uh, they like go over like what, what I was saying because they're taking detailed notes of everything. You know, maybe it's not the person right there in front of my face, but there is someone watching me, you know what I mean? And watching each person, what they say and you know what I mean? It's like, so afterwards we talked about it and it was like, wow, you, you don't think about it at the time, you know, but now afterwards when we talk about it, it was like, you don't realize that you're vulnerable. You think that like, man, I got this. Like I'm a Marine. I'm in serious school and the shit. And then, uh, you know, it's like you screw up and it's like, you, you kind of don't know where, where it went off the rails, but it happened. And so being able to talk about it and figure out like, you know, what happened in my mind that let me just kind of divulge information like a pansy, like, you know, but it happened, you know?
0: Yeah, totally. That's a super interesting perspective to be able to look back on later. I was going to ask you, and this might come up in these interviews from time to time if people want to talk about it, but on the subject of sort of PTSD and things to stick with you, which I know you were never in like actual combat. Fortunately, you don't have those psychological ramifications I have to deal with, but does this kind of training ever give you nightmares or has it just dissipated because it's been enough time? Do you ever think about it? Does it ever bother you or anything?
1: Uh, no, it doesn't bother me. In fact, I honestly, I look back, especially within the context of, you know, all of our friends as fellow Marine Corps air traffic controllers. I feel real lucky that I got to do this kind of training and have these experiences and you know do what I did because it is very not common and i really actively pursued trying to get into this you know i i don't know a single other air traffic controller that's went through serious school
0: yeah it's rare for sure
1: so yeah i don't have any nightmares i don't have any ptsd if anything i feel lucky to have got to be exposed to that level of training
0: yeah, next time we're in a plane crash together, I definitely know who to look to for advice and to lead the way.
1: <laughs> right, right. And you know what? And maybe, that. okay, now that you say that, perhaps a lot of my decisions will kind of wind down in life to like an end of day scenario, right? Maybe some of that stems from this. I don't know.
0: A part of that's just being smart. I mean, at this point, I've watched enough Air traffic accident investigations and witness one actual big airliner crash that I still to this day when I get on a plane or when other people are getting a plane, I tell them, check your exits. And that's the first thing I do, because I may not listen to the rest of the flight attendant briefing. But knowing where you are exiting that aircraft when shit hits the fan is, like, number one most important. In the dark, upside down, underwater. You need to know how many seats away from you is the nearest exit, and are you going to turn left or right. Right. Because you never know if you're going to be impaired or what. So, yeah, I think some of those things are really good life lessons.
1: Right, because when you're sitting there and you can see it, that's one thing. But when you're on the ground and there's smoke everywhere and blinking lights and you're disoriented now where's the exit it's not so easy is it
0: mm-hmm. i wanted to thank you personally tyler for coming on be my first interview thanks for your service and thanks for your friendship and i really appreciate you coming on and giving us this unique perspective
1: right back at you it's hard to overdo that uh that thanks but uh it's reciprocated 100 percent, bro
0: After Tyler finished his five-year contract, he used the GI Bill to go to school and got a bachelor's degree in engineering, and now works as an electrical engineer.